Well, I was going to say we're in for a real treat to have David Barton with us today, but let me tell you, I don't want to trivialize like that. It's going to be an honor. It's going to be an education. It's going to be a reminder of, to those of us that might have learned some of this in school, but unfortunately, not enough of us are still learning this or learning this today. But it's our, our founders, the founders of our country, and their position on God, their position on Christianity, and that this myth of church, uh, uh, of separation of church and state is exactly what it is, a myth. And that's what we need to be grounded on as Christians. That's what we need to know so that we can have intelligent conversations with those that don't know that. And guys like David Barton um, are just so critical to that movement, to our country, and what he does with wall builders uh, uh, headquartered in Weatherford, just down the road from us, he speaks in over 400, uh, at 400 gatherings, probably more than that, actually, a year. He's never home, and uh, he's, I don't know how many miles he has on his truck, but it's many. And uh, I, I, just, uh, I just am so honored, and we are just so honored to have him here today. You know, I've known David and of David and his ministry for a long, long time, and I'll confess to you that not all the time that I agree with his stance. We've been at odds from time to time. But, and I prayed for him that he'd wise up and, uh, you know, as, we, as we went forward. But let me tell you, it was impressed upon me more and more as I've known him and his ministry and heard him that the little pettiness I might have should never stand in the way of a man of God, should never stand in the way of a fellow Christian who has been called by God to do a ministry, to do a ministry as, as he has and his wife Cheryl have. And uh, it, it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing, a great day we're going to have. Now, he's going to talk fast. Matter of fact, Reverend White said, what do you tell you, you're the fastest mouth in the West or fastest mouth in the world? But he's got a lot to say in a short period of time, but he's got a lot of books. He's, very, he's a, a prolific author, and you can, over a cup of coffee, buy one of his books, and understand what he said, and said, oh yeah, that's what he meant, or that's what he said. And I will say again, as I said in Sunday school, the Founder's Bible that he has put together uh, with our, our, our Holy Word, and then quotes and, and uh, written messages from our founding fathers, how it meshes together, how it is such a wonderful tool, you'll never regret uh, picking that up and putting it in your personal uh, library. So without further ado, my friend, your friend, Christian brother, David Barton. Did I get it turned on? We got it? Okay. Honored to be with you this morning. And I want to start with something I think we all recognize, at least I hope we all recognize, and that is we are a very blessed people in America. Uh, we have been 238 years under the same piece of paper. No one in the history of the world has ever done that. Average countries average a revolution every generation or so. As a matter of fact, if you're 95 years old today and you live in Poland, you've lived through seven revolutions, seven constitutions. If you're a baby boomer in South Korea, you have lived through six constitutions. We've we still got the same one we've had. We, we've never had a second one. Nobody else has been able to do that for that period of time. We're also blessed with our creativity. Every year, our 4% of the world's population produces more inventions, more cures, more patents, more symphonies, more everything than the other 96% of the world combined. And our 4% of the world's population produces 25% of the world's GDP. We're the most prosperous nation in the world, unrivaled. 
we are blessed in a very real way. And had you been in school prior to World War II, and, and let me tell you up front, we have, we have a collection of 100,000 documents from before 1812. I own thousands of the handwritten documents of George Washington, John Adams, all got thousands of documents from after that. And if you go through our school textbooks prior to World War II, we would have openly told you that the reason America is different was because of the Bible. I mean, we didn't hesitate to say that. It's the Bible that made us different from every other people. We don't say that today. We say just the opposite. We're like every other nation, but we're not. And it's an easy thing to prove that the Bible has influenced us in ways we don't understand, even by the way we talk to one another. Do you know we have 257 idioms today that we use on a daily basis when we speak to one another that are direct quotations out of the Bible? Give you examples. These are all direct quotes of the Bible. These are Bible verses. By the skin of your teeth. I'll give you my two cents worth. A leopard can't change his spots. There's nothing new under the sun. Signs of the times. A thorn in the flesh. From the cradle to the grave. Handwriting on the wall. A fly in the ointment. And on it goes. Every one of those is a direct quotation of a Bible verse. Now if you want to have a lot of fun. Next time, I don't know, you go to Weatherford, Abilene, wherever you go. You hit Walmart. You hit Macy's. You hit Dillard's. You hit whatever. You'll hear somebody saying some of this stuff. And you need to stop them right there and say, hey, do you know what Bible verse you just quoted? And, of course, they won't have a clue. But the problem is they're going to say, no, I don't. What Bible verse was that? And the difficulty we have is most Christians don't have a clue either. See, here's the address for all of those things, but we don't recognize those verses today. We're not that familiar with even what the Bible does today. As a matter of fact, I love the way that President John Quincy Adams has described uh, really where we are today. President Adams said this. He said, with regard to the history contained in the Bible, it's not so much praiseworthy to be acquainted with it as it is shameful to be ignorant of it. You see, that's our default position. If you had known all those Bible verses, those 257 idioms, we would have praised you. I can't believe you know the Bible like that. Back in their day, they said, whoa, time out. You didn't know that came out of the Bible? How can you call yourself an educated person and not know the greatest book in the history of the world? See, the default position is real different today. If you know the Bible, we praise you. Back then, if you didn't know the Bible, it was shameful. Um, another person who has great things to say about the Bible is President Teddy Roosevelt. By the way, for the next few minutes, I'm going to use presidents to talk about the Bible. And I do that specifically. You expect me or Pastor Sean, or you expect us to say great things about the Bible. You don't expect that for a century and a half, it was the presidents of the United States who carried the water on the Bible in America. They're the ones who kept reminding Americans, we can't survive without the Bible. The Bible made us, it was, the, it was our national leaders, who, our national political leaders who told us that. This is what Teddy Roosevelt said. He said, the teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and so entwined with our civic and our social life. He didn't say spiritual life. That's a given. He said the Bible is so much a part of our civic and our social life that it would be impossible for us to figure what life would be if these teachers were removed. According to President Roosevelt, if you take out of America what the Bible produced, you wouldn't even recognize America. Now, he's talking about institutions. He's not talking about our faith. He's talking about our civic and our social life. You see, we used to know that our free market economic system historically was built on five Bible verses. The reason America's free market system is different from all others was because of 1 Timothy 5, 8, 2 Thessalonians 3, 10, Matthew 25, Luke 19, and Matthew 20. That was the basis of our free market economic system. You take that out, and nobody would recognize America today. But how many know that it was built on the Bible? Or at the time of the American founding, the Bible shows there are seven different forms of government. The Bible specifically chooses and endorses one form of government. It's called a Republican form of government. Founding Fathers chose that. That's why Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution prohibits America from ever becoming a democracy. We're required to maintain ourselves as a Republican form of government. 
Where'd that come from? Now, according to the guys who did the Constitution, they said they got that out of Exodus 18.21, Deuteronomy 1.15 and 16, and Deuteronomy 16.18. That form of government is the preferred form in the Bible. That's what they chose for America. So we were very open about our institutions, but not today. We, we don't understand that. Another president who has great things to say, this president is President Franklin Roosevelt. He says, in the formative days of the Republic, the directing influence the Bible exercised on the fathers of the nation is conspicuously evident unless you've been through our history books today and then it's conspicuously absent. There's no way you're going to find out how much the Bible influenced back then. We, we won't talk about that. But he continues. He said, we cannot read the history of our rise and development as a nation without reckoning with the place the Bible has occupied in shaping the advances of the republic. There's no way you can read American history and not see what the Bible has done to shape what has caused us to advance. Now, again, you can today. It's real easy today. But let me give you one example historically of what he's talking about. Let's take Ben Franklin. And Ben Franklin, out of our 250 founding fathers, Ben Franklin is certainly one of the least religious founding fathers, considered one of the five least religious founding fathers. So, uh, and by the way, Franklin was really interesting in that he's the first guy in the history of America to call for the United States of America. Way back in 1754, decades before the American Revolution, he's saying, let's not be 13 colonies, let's be the United States. Well, didn't get done back in 1754 when he was calling for it, didn't get done for the next decades. But in 1776, he's one of the 56 guys who signs the Declaration of Independence, our National Birth Certificate. And so 22 years later, now we're starting to get close to that United States that he's been wanting for all this time. Seven years later, he's one of only three guys to sign the peace treaty to end the American Revolution. Now we're getting really close to having that United States he wanted. And four years later, he's sitting in the Constitutional Convention helping form the United States of America. It's what he wanted for 33 years. It's been his dream, his lifelong dream, see the United States of America. And he's loving it, at least initially. Five weeks into the convention, he's not loving it anymore. Because you see, every state came with their own agenda. He had the New York plan and the New Jersey plan and the Connecticut plan and the Virginia plan. Of course, the guys from Virginia loved the Virginia plan. They didn't like the New York plan. The guys from New York didn't like the New Jersey plan. See, everybody had their own agenda. And so five weeks into the convention, it literally is falling apart. Delegates like Alexander Hamilton, they're leaving and going home. They're just tired of bickering with everybody. And George Mason of Virginia, he's had it. He's got better things to do than fight. And so the, the, he's wanted this for 33 years. And by the way, here's Franklin right there. But it's now falling apart in front of his eyes. And he ends up giving the longest speech that he gave at the Constitutional Convention. This thing is coming apart at the seams, Thursday, June the 28th, 1787. Now, let me point out, at the time Franklin gave this speech I'm about to show you, he was 81 years old. He was by far the elder member of the convention. Um, if you don't know, the average lifespan in America back then was 33 years old. So if you happen to be a high school senior and you're here this morning, and if you'd been alive back then, you would have already had your midlife crisis. I mean, when you hit 18, it's more than half over for you at 18. You're sliding, man, once you hit 18. So he is 81 years old. I want you to see what he told the other delegates. And he, he began this way. He said, gentlemen, he said, in this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? He said, in the beginning of the contest of Great Britain, when we were sensible, excuse me, he said, in the beginning of the contest of Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Now, time out here. 
He's one of only six guys who signed the Declaration and the Constitution. He says, guys, don't you remember that it was in this room when we signed the Declaration all those years of the Continental Congress, we had prayer every day in here for what was going on. Matter of fact, they prayed so much that you'll find that by 1815, they had issued 1,400 government-issued calls to prayer in America. I mean, they were really into praying. He said, guys, don't you remember we prayed all the time? He said, our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. He said, all of us engaged. All of us engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? He said, I have lived, sir, a long time. And the, oops, I'll kill that. There we go. He says, I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. He said, if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? He said, we've been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain that build it. He said, I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel, and we should become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. He said, I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Now, may I first point out, that's not bad for your least religious founding father. He has just chewed everybody else out for not praying enough. And he's your least religious founding father. But here's the question I have for you. What you just saw in Franklin's speech was 14 sentences long. Here's what I'm asking. How many Bible verses did you just see Ben Franklin quote? The answer is 14 Bible verses. These are the Bible verses Ben Franklin just quoted. But see, today, so many, we don't recognize those verses, but that's our generation. You see, today, if you know this, it's praiseworthy. Back then, even the least religious founding father knew the Bible that well, that their speech was punctuated with verse after verse after verse. And by the way, a little caveat here. After Franklin's speech, and he's the old man, they all respected him. The records of the convention indicate that it took three days off, kind of like a cooling off period. Let's back away from this a little bit. George Washington said that they went to church where they heard patriotic orations. And so there they are at church. And at church, by the way, Reverend William Rogers had a special prayer over the Constitutional Convention. Had him right there in front of him at the church. Everybody in town, everybody in Philadelphia knows this thing is falling apart. He's got him there, and he prays a special prayer over the Constitutional Convention. I actually have the prayer that he prayed. It was such a significant prayer that the newspapers of the day, everybody knew it was falling apart. Newspapers they actually ran his prayer on the front page of the newspaper. And it was not a little dinky, God bless this convention kind of a prayer. That, that prayer he prayed took up three-fourths of the front page of the newspaper. I mean, he really prayed over that convention. And when they came back after those three days of going to church in that time of prayer, delegates like Jonathan Dayton said, for the first time, the atmosphere had shifted. I mean, it was a dumb idea last week, but it's a pretty good idea this week. He said the whole tone had changed. And so they go from five weeks of fighting and bickering to now, after this three days off, they come back, and only ten weeks later, they finish the document under which we still govern ourselves today. Now, if you know the Bible, 
And if you read the Constitution, you will find Bible verses all over the Constitution. But the problem is so many folks today don't recognize Bible verses when they see them. And so what we're told today is, oh, the, the Constitution is a godless document. Uh, professors at Cornell University have a whole book on that, uh, Cramning Moore, said none of the Constitution is When somebody today tells me the Constitution is a secular godless document, what they have just told me is that they are biblically illiterate. They wouldn't recognize a Bible verse if it bit them in the ankle because there's Bible verses all over that. We just don't recognize it anymore. Now, this is why presidents like Andrew Jackson, who is the, probably one of our least religious presidents, it was real simple. For Andrew Jackson, he said, the Bible is the rock on which our republic rests. I mean, that was a no-brainer. Everybody knew that. Uh, you also have President Zachary Taylor. Pres President Taylor was a war hero. He was called Old Rough and Ready. Zachary Taylor said this. He said, the Bible is the best of books. I wish it were in the hands of everyone. He said it's indispensable to the safety and permanence of our institutions. Notice he didn't say faith. There it is again, our institutions. You see, and this is the problem we've got today. The more secular our institutions become, the less they work well. They're not working the way they're, you know, health care is not working the way it's supposed to. And by the way, the Bible has the greatest health outline, health code ever done. Uh, you can read a book called None of These Diseases showing all the health stuff in the Bible, uh, whether it's economics, which is not working the way it used to, whether it's judiciary, whether it's government, whether it's education, any of it. The, the more secular it becomes, the less it works. He says, it's indispensable. The Bible's indispensable to the safety and permanence of our institutions. He continued. He said, a free government cannot exist without religion and morals, and there can't be morals without religion, and there can't be religion without the Bible. He says, especially should the Bible be placed in the hands of the young. It is the best school book in the world. I would that all of our people were brought up under the influence of the holy book. Best school book in the world. Doesn't he know that's unconstitutional? You can't do that. That's the irony. If we today did what we did for three and a half centuries in America, going back to the very first public school law of 1647, which put the Bible in public schools, if we did today what we did for 350 years, it's suddenly unconstitutional. But you see, the reason it wasn't unconstitutional for that long period of time was because we knew exactly what our founding fathers had said. Great examples of Benjamin Rush, signed the Declaration, ratified the Constitution. John Adams said he's one of the three most notable founding fathers. John Adams said you get George Washington, Ben Franklin, Benjamin. Never even heard of the guy, Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush, in addition to his other things that he's noted for, he is called the father of public schools under the Constitution. Because you see, 1787, the Constitution was written. 1788, he ratifies it, one of the ratifiers. 1789, we now have a federal government. And in 1790, he came out with a piece that said, now that we're not just 13 states, we're a nation, what do we have to have in education to keep us a nation? What's it going to take to keep us together? And so in 1791, actually March the 10th, 1791, he came out with this piece, gave a dozen reasons we would never, ever take the Bible out of schools. If we're going to stay a strong nation, the one thing we'll never take away from education is the Bible. And so he gave a dozen reasons. And by the way, in, in that piece that he wrote, very final part, he says, in case any future generation should ever take the Bible out of schools, he said that generation will spend all their time and money fighting crime when they could have prevented crime right there in the classroom by teaching the Bible. You see, we understood that if you can't control the inside, you can't control the outside. The Bible controls the inside. God, Christ controls the inside. So I mean, this is what our founding fathers said. And so much did they say this that it was a no-brainer for the Supreme Court. You take a case of the U.S. Supreme Court, 1844, called Vidal versus Gerard's Executors. In that case, the question was, we've got a government-operated school, and that government-operated school not going to have the Bible at school. 
And so the Supreme Court went out and deliberated, came back with a unanimous 8-0 decision and said, you know, if that government-operated school doesn't want to teach the Bible, it doesn't have to, but it does have to become a private school because we're not going to fund any government school that won't teach the Bible. And I see a unanimous decision from the Supreme Court that we won't fund government schools that won't teach the Bible. Where are we today? See, but we've never heard that case before. But this is the kind of stuff we need. But I love what Benjamin Rush said. And, and by the way, in, in case, now let me make it really clear what's happened as a result of, of the court. This is a, what we call judicial act. I've been involved in seven cases of the U.S. Supreme Court. And judicial activism, really, we kind of point back to the 1960s is where it really got started. Actually, back in the 50s and 40s, they were laying the groundwork in the 60s when they implemented it. But in a case called Everson versus Board of Education, the U.S. Supreme Court said religion is very important in America. It's the basis of our heritage and history. Matter of fact, it's so important, you got the whole First Amendment to guarantee your free exercise of religion. Religion's important. Don't misunderstand that. But starting now, what we need you to do is we need you to practice your faith at home or at church. We really don't need to see it out in public anymore. I mean, if you like prayer, prayer you want to, let's just not do it at a high school football game anymore. And if you like the Ten Commandments, put them up in the foyer of church. What a great place for them. Let's just not have them in our courthouses anymore. And if you like a nativity scene, boy, doesn't that look great over a mantelpiece at Christmas time? Have it at home. Let's not have it out in city parks anymore. And so what's happened for the last several decades, we have been taught that we are supposed to compartmentalize our faith. You see, we're told that, well, in the Bible, Christianity, our, our faith, oops, excuse me, our Bible, Christianity, our faith, it's really important, and, and it goes over here, but it doesn't go in certain places. And that's what we've been told about education. You see, the first time in the history of the United States that we took the Bible out of education was in 1963, Abney Shimp and Murray Collette. And that particular decision, the court said, no more of the Bible in schools. We, we need to get away from that. And by the way, this is the court that delivered that decision. Now, if you want to know why they delivered it, you can go online and read the case. Abbott and Ship, Murray Corlett, it's a really easy one to read. And what you'll find is that the justices from the U.S. Supreme Court said the decision to take the Bible out of schools was without either legal or historical precedent. There, there's no basis for what they said. There's no basis for it. Then why did you do it if there's no basis? This is what the court said. The court said if portions of the New Testament were read without explanation, they could be and had been psychologically harmful to the child. We've now determined that the Bible causes psychological damage to those who read it, so we're not going to have that in schools anymore. That's the reason they took the Bible out of schools? We thought it was some great constitutional basis. No, that, that's given by the U.S. Supreme Court. And so from that, that's part of, of what we see, that compartmentalization. By the way, Benjamin Rush made a, a great statement here. Benjamin Rush said, the Bible, when not read in schools, is seldom read in any subsequent period of life. You see, this is really what has caused America to have so much of the biblical illiteracy we have today because what happens is if you don't start reading the Bible when you're four, five, six, whatever in school, it's a little harder to start reading it when you're 14, 15, and 16. It's even harder to start reading it when you're 24 and 25 and 26. And you're even less likely to read it when you get to be 34, 35, 36, or 40. See, just, if you don't get started young, it's a whole lot harder to pick it. And we know that polling-wise. I just finished a book with George Barton, a national pollster. And you look at it, and if you don't get these things impressed pretty early, it's really hard to start when you're late. So biblical literacy is a problem that we have in America. Now, when you look at what we have, the Bible itself is very clear about its own teachings. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says, All scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. This is where we get the 2,000-year-old doctrine that the Word of God is inspired, it's inerrant, and it's infallible. 
In my opinion, that is the most important doctrine of Christianity because if the Bible is not true, you really can't believe what's in the Bible and you've got to start picking and choosing what's true. And at that point, that puts you in charge of theology, bad place to be. So the Bible is an inspired book. Why did God give us an inspired book? He tells us in the very next verse, He said, I gave you this that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the word I would emphasize here is the word every because God's definition of every is a whole lot bigger than our definition. And again, I don't say that lightly. I say that because that's just the reality because we have come up where the court says, oh, you need to compartmentalize your faith. You know, it's okay in church, but it's not okay in education. It's okay in church, but it's not okay in government and law and politics. I mean, you know, after church, separation of church and state. It's okay in church, but it doesn't belong in medicine. And it's okay in church, but it doesn't have anything to do with science. And it's okay in church, but you got entertainment and athletics. See, we, we've separated the Word of God. And as a result, so many Christians today believe that there is a difference between the secular and the spiritual, and there is not. I guarantee you, God judges every aspect of life by His Word. We will not be standing at the great judgment the last day and watching all these people come by and be judged, and here comes a guy and God says, whoa, that guy was involved in politics, my Word doesn't apply to him, he's off the hook, send in the next one. It's not going to happen. God will judge everything by His Word. He expects us to do exactly the same. That's why He gave us His Word, that we can be equipped for every good work. Now, one of the interesting things that we did in previous generations, and this is one of the things that we see because of all this historical documentation we have, is you can go back in previous generations, and what you find is that they believed God's Word applied to everything. Uh, Representative Kepper just talking about the Founder's Bible. What we did was we took the Founder's own writing about all these Bible verses and showed the Bible verses they used to construct public policy, to construct our institutions, to construct the judicial system. Do you know even Stephen Breyer, a Justice U.S. Supreme Court currently, who is one of the least religious guys on the Supreme Court, he says, oh, we all know the Bible is the basis of the due process clauses. Really? Do you know that the Fourth through the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution came out of the Bible? Yeah. If you go to Federal Practice and Procedure, which is the dozens of volumes long on how you practice federal law, pick up volume 30. There's nearly 60 pages on how the Bible shaped all the due process clauses. You get to confront your accuser because of what you find in Proverbs 18, 17 and what Jesus said in John 8, 12. You, you get to have an attorney. You get to have all these. You get to compel witnesses in your favor. You get to have a trial by jury. All the due process stuff comes out of the Bible. Now, we don't recognize that today, but that's historically part of who it is. So that's why we believed in previous generations the Bible applied to every aspect of life. And one of the things that you'll find also is how that works. Now, if we were to transport ourselves forward from you know, where they were 250 years ago today, say, okay, what might Christians back then say about what we face today? So let me just show how the Bible applies to every aspect of life. Let me take some headlines we've had recently. Um, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act, greatest... NDAA is what that's called. Now, what in the heck is the NDAA? NDAA is what we call the Defense Act. Uh, the Founding Fathers, when they created the Constitution, did not want a permanent military. A standing military is what they called it. So in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, you have to fund the military every two years from the ground up. We do it from scratch every two years all the way top to bottom. We do not have a permanent military in America. That's why we have to fund the whole thing every two years. Now, as part, that's called the NDAA, by the way, the National Defense Authorization Act. That NDAA, why would that be of any interest to Christians whatsoever? Because the biggest issue we have had in the last three NDAAs has been on the rights of conscience. You see, six years ago, the, and, and I'm very involved with members of Congress, about 120 guys in Congress I consider to be very good personal friends. 
Six years ago, what we were fighting is the military said, chaplains, you can't pray in Jesus' name. We'll tell you what words you can use in your prayer and what words you can't use. We said, no, no, no. That's not government's business to tell you what to pray or what words you can or can't use in prayer. So in the NDAA, as part of the military, we had to put in protection that you have the right to pray according to the dictates of conscience. Well, then two NDAAs ago, the issue was we had Fort Polk, Louisiana, where the commander said, chaplain, go perform homosexual weddings. Chaplain said, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I'm not going to do that. Yes, sir, you will. You're in the military. You'll do exactly what we do. And I'm a chaplain. I minister to spiritual needs. I answer to God before I answer to the military. I'm not going to do it. So we had this big fight going on. So what happens is we have to give protection for, con for conscience, protection for chaplains. They can't be forced to perform homosexual weddings. And, and matter of fact here, White House strongly objected. White House strongly objects to legislation protecting military chaplains from doing same-sex weddings from being forced to act against. I mean, we're doing this? Well, this is not appropriate for church. This is political stuff. I've got news for you. This is not political stuff. The Bible has more than 30 references in the New Testament alone to the rights of conscience. The Bible specifically tells us to craft public policies to protect the rights of conscience. This has nothing to do with Republicans or Democrats. This is not political. This is biblical. This was there a long time before the United States government ever existed. This is a biblical position. So when we look at what's going on in military or what's going on with nurses and hospitals or what's going on with pharmacists or anything else, the Bible is really clear. You protect the rights of conscience. That's what we've had as public policy. That's not a political position. That's a biblical position. Another headline. See his headline? House passes deal. Fiscal cliff averted. If you remember the fiscal cliff, and we still fight with this in every budgeting session right now. As a matter of fact, we're back to it now in this new Congress. There's three primary issues that go with the fiscal cliff. Those three economic issues are debt, taxes, and deficit. Deal with this every two years. All right. The debt is a big deal, $18 trillion. What does the Bible say about debt? Well, take the debt issue. The Bible is very clear about debt. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells you specifically that your freedom is inversely proportional to your debt. That is, let me explain it this way. I get a paycheck on Friday. I get my paycheck. If I'm not in debt, I've got a lot of freedom for what I can do with that money. If I am the average American family and I have $21,000 of credit card debt, I have $32,000 of car debt, I have $31,000 of student loan debt, and I have $148,000 of mortgage debt. When I get my paycheck on Friday, I don't have a lot of freedom with what I'm going to do with my money. It's already decided for me because my creditors will tell me what. But if I don't have any debt at all, man, I can go to Six Flags. I can go, I can go, whatever, I can go whatever I want. That's the freedom you get if you don't have debt, which is why the Bible tells us, Proverbs 22, 7, that the borrower is servant to the lender. Romans 13, 8, owe no man anything except the loved one. See, the Bible's real clear. Stay out of debt. You lose your freedom when you get into debt. Well, that applies for individuals. It applies for families. It applies for churches. It applies for states. It applies for the nation. God doesn't want you in debt, which is why Deuteronomy 15, 6 says, your nation is not to go into debt. Here we are. That's not a political issue. That's a biblical issue. God spoke about that a long time before America ever existed. We also have taxes. That's an issue with, with Congress. Uh, one of the taxes we have is the estate tax. For the first time in American history, this last budget deal, we made the estate tax a permanent tax. Twice before, it's been a temporary tax, never a permanent tax. It's now a permanent tax. So what? That's what Congress does. They deal with taxes. No. The Bible tells us the estate tax is one of the most immoral type of taxes you can place on a nation. The Bible absolutely condemns estate taxes. You also have the issue of capital gains tax. America, in, in the fiscal cliff deal, we made the capital gains tax the highest capital gains tax of any nation in the world. We have the highest. So what? 
What do you mean, so what? Jesus has two entire teachings condemning the capital gains tax. Jesus is real clear, that's a bad tax. He doesn't tolerate that from his viewpoint. You also have what we call progressive taxes. When the Constitution was written in 1789, the Founding Fathers put a provision in that said your form of taxation in America is capitation taxation. In 1913, through the 16th Amendment, we changed that to be progressive taxation. In the fiscal cliff deal, we moved from three different forms of progressive taxes to five different forms of progressive taxes. Now, that's taxation system. Systems of tax, who cares? That's not a church issue. I mean, whether it's progressive taxation, capitation tax, it doesn't matter. It does matter. Jesus, the Bible takes a real clear position. Capitation taxation is what the Bible says is right. Progressive taxation is what the Bible says is wrong. The Bible's not opposed to taxes. The Bible specifically tells us what type of taxes are good and what type is bad. Capitation taxes, yes. Uh, progressive taxes, no. And these are all biblical verses, again, long before America ever existed. Let me show you another article. This one, Muslim Brotherhood Inherits U.S. War Gear. Now, if you know much about the Muslim Brotherhood, they have said, you know, Israel's the little Satan, America's the great Satan. We're going to wipe out the little Satan, then we'll come get the great Satan. And, by the way, from Israel's standpoint, that's not good news. If you know much about Israel, particularly, there, there she is right there. There's only 13 million Jews in the world. 7 million live in Israel, 6 million live outside of Israel. There's 13 million Jews in the entire world. That's about the population of the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex, North Texas area, about 13 million. That's all the Jews in the world, and you have 1.9 billion folks who have pledged to exterminate them. Now, if you keep score, that means you're outnumbered about 146 to 1. It's not real good odds. And so what, what we've said is, hey, we're, we're, we're going to give... Muslim Brotherhood, we're going to give them our, our, our military gear. And I've got two kids active duty military right now. America has the greatest military in the world, hands down. But what we have just done is give people who said we're going to exterminate you and Israel, we've given them the exact same material that we use in our military. We just gave them 400 F-16s and Abrams tanks. And that's what our guys use. Now, what does the Bible say about this? The Bible is really, really clear. The Bible says... If you help Israel's enemies, God will not bless your nation. Real simple stuff. Nothing political about that at all. That was before governments even existed back in Genesis 12. God made that, that pledge. It's real simple. See, that's why we as Christians have to get back to thinking biblical about stuff and this compartmentalist, oh, that's political stuff. We as Christians don't deal with that. No, we just deal with biblical stuff. But the Bible applies to every single aspect of life. One other qu quick story, one other quick... Um, and, newspaper article to show you. Chicago takes a leading role in the national gun debate. Gun control. What's the Bible say about gun control? It says nothing at all because guns didn't exist in the Bible. But what Jesus does tell us is in Mark 7 he says all bad behavior comes out of the heart. You can't control the heart, you can't control bad behavior. So what we learn is that the problem is not what's in the hand, it's what's in the heart. And if you doubt that, go back to Cain and Abel. Certainly no guns back then. But Cain has hate in his heart, so what's he do? He picks up a rock and clubs his brother with a rock. Ooh, maybe if we could get Congress to pass rock control laws, we would be a lot better off. That, that's what we need is rock. And, see, it is not what's in your hand. It's what's in your heart that makes all the difference. And that's what we used to understand. You remember what Dr. Benjamin And by the way, just to be real clear about this, if I've got hate in my heart. I can kill you with a can of green beans. I mean, it doesn't matter. If there's hate there, I will find a way to take you out. And no amount of laws you can pass will control the outside if you can't control the inside. Remember what Dr. Rush said? He said, if you ever take the Bible out of schools, you'll spend all your time and money fighting crime. 
I was a consultant in the U.S. Justice Department for a number of years. And if you look at violent crime, I mean, here it is for all those years, but there's the year that we took the Bible out of schools. Interesting, the violent crime has increased 694% since that point in time. We spend all of our time and money fighting crime because we're trying to control the outside without controlling the inside. And if you can't control the inside, you can't control the outside. So that's what we understood. We understood that the Bible applied to every single aspect of life. No question about it. And by the way, just one more example on this. Dr. Rush, look what he said here. He said, the Bible contains more necessary, more knowledge necessary to man in his present state than any other book in the world. There is no book you can study right now today in the 21st century that will give you better knowledge than what's in the Bible. Well, now, wait a minute. Technology and transportation, no, you don't understand. And let me give you the example. The example is this guy, Matthew Maury. Now, you may not recognize him. Matthew Maury is called the father of oceanography because he's the guy who figured out that we have jet streams in the ocean, that you can put a ship in a jet stream and it'll go a certain place. See, he, he lived back at the time. He grew up listening to the speeches of, of, of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison back in the founding era. He was a sailor. He was a ship captain. He loved the sea. He eventually owned his own ships, and he sailed all over the sea, and he loved that. And one time while he was ashore, he was in a stagecoach accident that just shattered his leg. And from that point on, he was never able to use his leg right, so he couldn't go back to sea because he couldn't handle being on the ship. And so here is a guy who loves the sea with all of his heart who is now bound to the land. He can't go back to the sea. But he's still called the father of oceanography because he found out that there's currents in the ocean that if you're going from here to Europe and you'll move over here about 50 miles and get in this current, it'll get you there a week faster than if you're out of that. And, of course, for, for commercial stuff, if you can get there a week faster, you can get back a week faster, you get more ships, it makes a big economic difference. And he also found, you know, by the way, when you're coming back from Europe to America, there's a different jet stream you can get in. And if you're going to Australia or you're going to India or Africa, he found all these jet streams that connect all the continents. And so to this day, we still use these shipping channels because if you get in them, you go a lot faster than if you're some, somewhere else in the sea. Now, it's interesting. He told us how he discovered this because you think about where he is back in the early 1800s. Think of the technology back then. There's no satellites. There's, how did he figure out where in the sea these currents are? How, how did he know where to go to find those things? And how did he know they were even there? I mean, how many times can you sail across the ocean and never see currents? That are, how did he find that? He tells us that he found that specifically out of Psalm chapter 8, verse 8. He said he was at home sick one day, and as he was homesick, he had his family read the Bible out loud to him. And they were reading out of Psalm chapter 8. And this is the passage they were reading. Psalm chapter 8 says, Lord, thou madest man to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. He said, wait a minute. Read that again. And they read it again. He said, slow down. Read it again. And you see, what jumped out to him was whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. I've been on the sea my whole life. I've never seen a path. I've seen paths on land. I've seen paths through valleys, paths through forth. Never seen a path. Read, read it again. Read, read it again. And they kept reading it over and over. And he said, paths. And God says there's paths in the sea. If there's paths in the sea, there's paths. I've got to find the paths in the sea. So that's what he did. That's how he found what we call those ocean currents. That's why he's the father of oceanography, because of what he found in Psalms 8, that God said there's paths through the sea. But it doesn't stop there. There's another passage that really jumped out to him as he's reading his Bible. And it was this passage from Ecclesiastes 1.6. It says, the wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. 
The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. Wait a minute. The wind goes toward the south and then turns toward the north. It turns on its circuit. And so he started studying the winds because now he's on land. He's no longer in sea. He's on land. And he's the guy who discovered there are jet streams up in the air as well. And because he discovered jet streams for the first time, weather prediction became possible because we could predict what was going to happen if the wind was going this direction or this direction. Whether it's coming from north or south, we could tell you what kind of weather was coming. And, of course, that made a big difference in shipping. You guys really don't want to leave this week. Leave next week because here's the weather patterns you're about to get. I mean, it changed everything. So he is called the father of naval meteorology. That's where we get meteorology. It's from this guy. Where did he get that? Out of Ecclesiastes 1.6. You see there's, and by the way, father of naval meteorology, father of oceanography. He's the pathfinder of the seas. And he got criticized even back in his day. They said, no, nah, you're using the Bible the wrong way. The Bible doesn't apply to science. He got criticized both in England and America. Look what he said. He says, I've been blamed by men of science, both in this country in America and in England, for quoting the Bible in confirmation of the doctrines of physical geography. The Bible, they say, was not written for scientific purposes and is therefore of no authority in matters of science. He says, I beg pardon? The Bible is authority for everything it touches. The Bible is true, and science is true. They're both true. And when your men of science, with vain and hasty conceit, announce the, the discovery of disagreement between them, and in other words, science contradicts the Bible, he says, rely on it. The fault is not with the witness or his records. It's not God that's wrong. He says, it's with the worm, the sinful human, who attempts to interpret evidence which he does not understand. Science will always come back to the Bible cannot tell you how many times in my lifetime science has found something that contradicted the Bible that five years later was back in line with the Bible. Always works that way. So that's why we know the Bible is good for every single aspect of life. So closing down this morning, just challenge you. Any issue you see in the newspaper, and all these issues I'm putting up here, they all have specific Bible verses that go with them. We need to get reacquainted with the Bible so that we can see how it applies to every single issue of life. Every one of those things the Bible talks about fully, thoroughly, and completely. They're, they're not new issues. That's why the Bible does apply to every aspect of life. We just got to get out of our compartmentalization, get back to saying, you know, the Bible is a practical book. It applies to everything that comes up in life. And this is the issue we've got today in America. Read the Bible. Do you know that right now, this, this book I just did with George Barna, less than 30% of professing Christians have spent any time in God's Word. And only about 5% of Christians have ever read through the Bible from cover to cover in their lifetime. Now, how do you have a biblical worldview if you don't know what the Bible says? And only about 5% of Christians have read the Bible from cover to cover in their lifetime? You know, going back to John Quincy Adams, he wrote so much about the Bible that in 1848, they took the president's writings in the Bible and did a book for 10-year-old Americans showing 10-year-old Americans how to read through the Bible from cover to cover once every year. What do you think would happen today if any president were to write a book for 10-year-old Americans, how to read the Bible cover to cover once a year? That's what he did. And in that book, look what he told these 10-year-olds. He says, no book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated on as the Bible. That's, just, that's what Matthew Murray did. He said, no, wait a minute. i got to get to the bottom of that verse. I'll read it again. Now, wait a minute. Ecclesiastes 6, the wind goes to the north and comes back. There's circuits of the See, you have to profoundly meditate on it. You've you got to read it and then slow down and 
chew on it for a while, like a cow chewing its cud. You just got to sit there and chew it and chew it and chew it, and then things start popping out. And he says, no book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated upon as the Bible. I have myself for many years made it a practice to read through the Bible once every year, and that was the practice back then. Benjamin Rush and, and John Jay and Roger Sherman and Elias Budno, founding father after founding father, Bible, cover to cover, once every year. That was practice. He says, I've always endeavored to read it with the same spirit which I now recommend to you. In other words, 10-year-olds, I want to tell you how I've read the Bible, and here's what I'm recommending to you. The same spirit which I now read it, he says, that is with the intention and desire that it may contribute to my advance in wisdom and virtue. In other words, when I read the Bible, it is not a devotional book, and I'm not looking for spiritual things. I'm looking for things that will change my thinking, my wisdom, and that will change my behavior, my virtue. I'm looking for practical things every time I read the Bible. I want to look for stuff that will change the way I think and the way I act and the way I go at it. See, that's the way to read the Bible. And let me challenge you, if you have never read through the Bible from cover to cover in your lifetime, make a commitment this morning that by next January 18th, you for the first time will have read the Bible from cover to cover. Real easy. Three chapters a day will do it, 15 minutes. And if you don't want to read it, then just do what some of us do, and that's pull out our phone, and we have it read it to us because there's all these apps out there that will take the Bible, divide it in 365 days, and read that day's portion to you, and you can sit there and shave or brush your teeth or whatever you want to do and hear the daily Bible reading. You'll get through the Bible every year. It's an easy thing to do. And in case you're one of that 5% that's already read through the Bible in your lifetime, maybe you've already read through it 10 times. This year, make it number 11. Maybe you've read through it 25 times. Make it 26 this year. You'll never get to the bottom of what's in the Bible. The Bible says it is unsearchable. If you've read it 50 times, every time you read it, you'll see something brand new that you've never seen before. doesn't matter how many times you go through it. So make that a commitment. I'll close with this promise. The promise God gives out of Joshua 1.8 is this promise. He says, constantly think about my word every day and every night so you'll be sure to obey it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. See, that's what made America different, is we weren't perfect, not by a long shot, but more than any other nation at that time, we tried to apply God's Word. We tried to apply it in economics and education and medicine and so many areas. That's what will make our nation prosperous. further we get away from it, less prosperous will be. That's what will make our state prosperous. That's what will make city prosperous. That's what will make the church prosperous. That's what will make your family prosperous and you prosperous and all and spiritual things and other things as well. It goes back to God's Word. So, let me challenge you to get in God's Word. That's the best way to know God, by the way. Is he, Jesus says, do you think you know me? Study the Scriptures. See, that's where you really find out who God is, is getting into God's Word. So that's the key. That's what's made us special. That's what will keep us special as we stay in God's Word. God bless you guys.